Well, welcome back. Um, I was um, joking with Sean that I have a sitting group on Wednesday night in uh, San Rafael, and uh, the people in uh, that sitting group, some of whom are here tonight, so I hope you won't take this personally, are much less well-behaved in terms of coming back right on time from break. So I thought maybe Jack has really trained you well, or I don't know what, but anyway, that was, so, that was great. Here we are, wow, 15 minutes later. Maybe Sean has trained you, I don't know. No one's trained you, it's just good intentions. So let's see, uh, what I'd like to explore with you a bit are some reflections about Memorial Day. And uh, as you know, uh, in America, Memorial Day is, is a formal holiday for uh, service members in the armed forces, soldiers, sailor, sailors, Marines, etc. Um, typically uh, uh, emphasizing a, a recollectedness which, interestingly, is the root of the word for mindfulness uh, in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, a recollectedness with regard to those who have died uh, in uh, wars or otherwise in the military serving the country. And it's a very interesting and double-edged sword of, of uh, uh, inquiry uh, or consideration here because, as you well know, Buddhism is very nonviolent. So how do we put those together? And so if you'll join with me this evening in walking through something of a, forgive the metaphor, minefield of considerations and complexities, I have in mind a certain kind of way to engage this subject uh, that, might ha- that I think um, has broader implications. So in that context, uh, to begin with, as a kind of exploration of mindfulness, uh, I'd like you to, if you'd like, I'll mention six groups of people, and uh, you might see what comes up for you when you simply reflect about them. Uh, Not uh, necessarily praising, not necessarily blaming, simply seeing what happens when you reflect on people who, first, have fought and died as American military personnel, going as far back as you like. And I'll do this with you, of course, about half a minute for each one of these six things. or people from other countries who have fought and died in wars as military personnel, including sometimes in wars against the United States. It's contemplating on those beings. And third, contemplating on another group, 
those people um, who might include you among them, who care about, have loved, have been related to, have given birth to, those soldiers, sailors, etc., both American and from other countries, who have died in wars. In other words, the mothers and fathers of those soldiers, broadly defined, um, their boyfriends and girlfriends, children and mates, contemplating now on this third group of people. And a fourth contemplation, again, just seeing what kind of arises when you um, open your heart to these different types of people. The fourth group being uh, really anyone around the world, at home or abroad, who's put themselves on the line in a really serious way, not as a member of any kind of armed forces. For example, firefighters, police officers, or uh, protesters or activists for social justice in Tiananmen Square, Burma, Cairo, or Birmingham, Alabama, uh, reflecting on these people who've put themselves on the line and in some cases, um, thinking about journalists as well, political prisoners, um, who've sometimes died as a result. And fifth, um, civilians uh, caught up in war who died or suffered as a result, in the wrong place at the wrong time, perhaps, or And then last, um, really broadening it out, just reflecting on people, probably including oneself, who've been hurt, even seriously hurt, uh, emotionally or sometimes physically, in conflicts of any kind with other people, on the schoolyard, 
uh, in families, in the workplace, discriminated against, in relationships, conflicts, in communities. Just thinking of all the people, probably most if not all of us included, who have suffered as a result of human conflicts. It's really um, poignant and powerful, isn't it, to contemplate on all the people who've been um, swept up in conflicts or harmed in conflicts, including the most extreme forms of conflict, you know, large-scale wars. And, you know, whatever one's politics might be, and it's not appropriate to do politics from this seat, so I won't, uh, but whatever one's politics might be, I mean, I think just most of us, if not all of us worldwide, could appreciate that a lot of people have suffered and been harmed by and even sometimes killed by um, conflicts and wars of different kinds that when you look at them as a whole, you step back and you go, why is it like this, right? Like, is this really necessary? Why? What's the why? What's, what's causing this? Buddhism, as you know, is a study of causes, causes and conditions, processes and causes. What are the processes and what are they caused by, for better or worse, right? So um, I'd like to explore with you a bit of a consideration or about what are the fundamental causes of human conflict and what can we do about them. And I should say a word about myself, which I probably should have done in the very beginning, so, Rick Hansen, uh, I'm professionally a psychologist and neuropsychologist. I started meditating in 1974, and off and on, mostly on, the last couple decades. And um, in the last 20 years, I've, I've gone fairly deeply into Buddhist practice, especially, and in the last 10, gone very deeply into neurodharma. In other words, uh, an investigation of what the causes and conditions are let me put it a little differently. The Buddha investigated the mental causes of suffering and happiness. It, now, 2,500 years later, we're beginning to answer the question of what are the underlying neural or biological or evolutionary causes of those mental causes of suffering in its end. And if we can engage um, you know, an inquiry into what are those deeper underlying causes, that can give us a lot of resources for doing something about the causes of suffering or happiness that live at the level of the mind, which is, of course, all that we're ever aware of. So that's my context here. So I thought I could talk a bit, and then we could open it up for some discussion here. And um, I'll definitely end for sure by 9.15, and I'll see if I can end a few minutes beforehand. Okay? Okay. So, um, 
You may know this Native American teaching story. I've heard it in different forms. I'll tell it to you in the form I heard it in. In terms of the question of why is there so much conflict? Why has there been so much conflict in human history? Um, The way I heard the story is that an elder was asked toward the end of her life, a grandmother, uh, how did you become so loved and so wise and so liked and respected? Everyone listens to you. Uh, everyone uh, appreciates you. You seem to have had a very good and long life. Um, what did you do? How did you do it? Uh, and she said, well, early on I realized that in my heart were two wolves, one of love and one of hate. And I realized that everything depended on which one I fed each day. I've told that story and thought of it many, many times. Every time I do it, like right now, I'm like, oh, I'm about to cry, you know, or something, you know, just the shivers. And it's very profound, a lot of levels. One is, obviously, uh, the question of, you know, causes, which, you know, the Buddha a lot used the metaphor of fire. Uh, When he taught 2,500 years ago, the time of the Vedas, um, there was a lot of emphasis on ritual involving fire. So he uses a lot the metaphor of fuel. And which fire are you fueling? He uses also the language of nutriment, food. What are we feeding? Which wolf are we feeding? If the wolves are like fires, you know, which fire are we putting logs on, right? The fire of love or the fire of hate? The wolf of love or the wolf of hate? So the first takeaway is one of really uh, both responsibility and hopefulness. You know, we can really make a difference here. Which, Which fire are we putting logs on every minute? in our mind, with our words, with our deeds. What are we doing? And the other huge takeaway that's embedded in that story is a a kind of poignant recognition of the capabilities in almost every human heart, if not every human heart, for both love and hate, broadly defined. My personal opinion is I think there's some people who are born, they don't have a wolf of hate. They just don't. They're very unusual. Just most people, me included, do have that capacity to go there, right? So why do we have these wolves? What are the underlying causes of these two wolves in our own evolution as human animals? As what the poet Mary Oliver calls the soft animal of the body. What's the basis for, the causes for these two wolves? And by knowing what those causes are, and how those wolves operate, what can we learn in our own practice in terms of feeding the wolf of love and restraining the wolf of hate? Maybe putting it on a carrot juice diet. You can't hate the wolf of hate because that just feeds the wolf of hate. But at least we can restrain him and get him some more tofu or something, him or her it. Okay, so how to do that, right? That's where I think that a little knowledge about evolution in the brain can go a long way and actually be really pretty helpful in practice. So to tell a story that you may well know already, uh, the nervous system has been evolving for about 600 million years. Uh, Mammals arose about 200 million years ago. Mammal, pardon me, primates another 40 or so million years ago. And early humans who could make stone tools two and a half million years ago, even though they did that, with brains a third our size. And then modern, genetically modern humans arose about 150,000 or so years ago. 
during almost all of this time, certainly going back into primate history, um, our ancestors generally lived in small bands. And especially early hominids lived in small hunter-gatherer bands, and then certainly modern humans. And in these small bands, two things were true. If you wanted to pass on your genes, it became increasingly important to know how to love, broadly defined, us. In other words, it was really important for uh, primate bands, hominid bands, and early human bands to be able to become increasingly effective at bonding with children, developing mate bonding to keep fathers involved in the care of children who had longer and longer childhoods for their growing brain to really fulfill its capabilities. It became increasingly important to draw the band together to become the village it takes to raise a child, and increasingly important for bands to survive, to be able to have language, to have empathy, to form cooperative plans, and to have altruism, generosity, and compassion and kindness for each other. This is what's called the social brain theory of evolution that makes the point that the primary driver of the tripling in volume of the human brain in the last several million years, and arguably the evolution of the brain altogether over the last dozen million years, the primary driver of that has been the survival benefits of love, broadly defined. The so-called reproductive advantages of social skills of many different kinds. So one story, this is the story of the wolf of love. This is a story of, in terms of biological factors, just ignoring moral factors, just purely biological factors, uh, bred a wolf of love that's deep in our nature, sitting in this room today. Okay. There's another story, though. As small bands that bred mainly internally, okay, and which were better, the ones that were better at love were more able to pass on their genes competing with other bands. In other words, bands that were better at teamwork and cooperation and even altruism and even sacrificing their lives for the sake of the group um, could outcompete other bands for scarce resources, especially at times of natural climate change uh, in which um, it was very intense and difficult to survive. All right? That's one story. The other story is that as bands competed with each other for scarce resources, bands that were better at hate, that were better at aggression and fear and dehumanization and exploitation of other primate bands or hominid bands or early human bands were also more able to pass on their genes. While it is true that some bands did cooperate with each other and exchange trade and, you know, there was some genetic proliferation, you know, between bands one way or another, uh, nonetheless, uh, very strong and authoritative uh, studies of various kinds, anthropological studies, uh, modern studies into hunter-gatherer bands, estimate that the death rate for males uh, due to interband between band violence were on the order of 12 to 15 times greater than the death rate due to all the wars in the 20th century for males. About 1% of all males in the 20th century died due to warfare, whereas the uh, mortality rate uh, for males in interband conflict in hunter-gatherer times, on average, with some exceptions, on average, though, 
was about 12 to 15 percent. It's really quite striking. There wasn't the shock and awe back in the Stone Age, but a lot of grinding, you know, violence. And of course, they didn't have medical care. So um, fighting was a lot more lethal uh, in its consequences. So we have these two stories, and if you think about it very poignantly, um, the wolf of hate, in part, helped the wolf of love. In other words, bands that were better at dominating, attacking, and eliminating competing bands could have more resources for their own children. And bands, on the other hand, that were better at the wolf of love, that could cooperate better, that had better language, had more empathy, had more friendship, more camaraderie with each other, were more successful when they, in a sense, warred upon other bands. In a sense, in the human heart, these two, these two little puppies you know, play together, the wolf of love and the wolf of hate, feeding each other, enabling each other, uh, partnering with each other. And they are alive and well and barking today in our hearts today. It's quite poignant to appreciate the basic truth of this story. So what are we going to do about these two wolves? Well, it's very interesting that our resting state, when we feel basically safe, basically satisfied, and basically connected, in other words, when our three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection are taken care of, which are loosely associated with the, as it were, three floors of the house of the brain, the brainstem, subcortex, and cortex, which loosely focus on avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others in terms of those three needs. When we experience that those needs are basically met, not perfectly, but basically, so there's not much sense of deficit or disturbance deep down, the brain defaults naturally, automatically to its resting state where it recovers and refuels itself, and where the mind, in broad terms, is colored by a quality of peace, contentment, and love, in terms of those three floors of the house of the brain and our three fundamental needs, peace, contentment, and love. And at that point, the wolf of love is happy. All right? Now, that state of mind feels good. It feels good because it is good. It's good for us to rest in the responsive mode of the brain, the green zone, I call it, the setting it goes to when there isn't a sense of deficit or disturbance. We're supposed to hang out most of our time there, right? Unfortunately, modern life stresses us and cranks us up into mild to moderate stress and often produces the experience of fear and threat where we don't feel safe, and the experience of uh, frustration or disappointment. We don't feel our needs are met. We're thwarted in our goals, stuck in traffic, multitasking, trying to get a toddler into a car seat, one of the more stressful things known to humankind, right? Um, or we feel disconnected from others. You know, the village it takes to raise a child looks more like a ghost town much of the time these days. And so when we go to that condition, the wolf of hate jumps up and starts looking around for something to bite. Right? It's there to protect us when we go into the red zone, as it were, the reactive mode of the brain, which has basically two settings, two ways of going about meeting our fundamental needs. It's interesting to appreciate that in the Buddhist language, um, Buddhist psychology, the craving 
that produces suffering and harm, right? Um, craving that is a fundamental cause of suffering and harm is produced by states of deficit or disturbance. In other words, craving comes out of the brain on red, in effect, in ways large and small. So as a matter of practice, how can we come home increasingly to the green zone, as it were, and to get the lights in the brain switchboard blinking green instead of red? So in terms of conflict with other people, I'm bringing it where we started, there are two factors that many studies have shown lead people to treat others well when two conditions are met. We're now thinking about causes and conditions, right? Number one, when we see others as us and when we're not afraid, most people treat other people well, right? We're very kind to strangers, we're altruistic, we jump up and help people who are in famine across the world or have had tornadoes close at home. In other words, when we see them as us and when we don't feel desperate or afraid ourselves, we treat other people well. But as soon as we see others as them, studies show that very automatically we tend to start dehumanizing them, seeing them less human as us, more two-dimensional, and more either as victims that we can exploit or aggressors who are about to take something from us. Just the distinction, us and them, does that. It starts that, it begins that process. The process doesn't need to go all the way, but it begins the process. And the other one is fear. Any sense of anxiety, threat, unease, apprehension, panic, let alone panic, boom, out comes the wolf of hate. What to do? Okay, so far? So how do we do it? How do we really do it? How do we, in effect, use what we know to engage the causes and conditions inside our own mind of quieting and greening, as it were, the wolf of hate? So, first of all, of course, we engage mindful awareness, mindful self-awareness. We start noticing when we're getting our knickers in a twist, right? When we're starting to rev up, when we're getting kind of agitated, or when we're starting to see others as not me, um, we become more aware of our emotional reactions. Mindful self-awareness. Holding our own experience in a space of awareness in which we investigate with kindness and hopefully some self-compassion and some insight. So we do that. That's great. That's, 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 that's number one. We always want to do that, right? And often that's enough. Often just kind of stepping back and witnessing our reactions, that is enough much of the time. But is it enough all of the time? I don't know about you, not for me. Sometimes I need to work on the dimension of wise effort, one of the elements of the Noble Eightfold Path, where I'm trying to reduce things that are negative and trying to increase things that are positive. Or if the mind is a garden, pull weeds and plant flowers, you know, in the garden of the mind. So I'd like to explore some ways to see others as us and then I'll talk about some ways we can, um, you know, basically live increasingly in a mind, with a mind that's not colored by irrational, unnecessary fear. Okay. So I'd like to share with you the Metta Sutta. You probably know this. Uh, this is one of the most beloved texts in Buddhism. And I'm going to read a, an abridged version of it. And I invite you to, as you hear it, 
listen for a word or phrase that really speaks to you personally, really touches your own heart. All right? So here we go. That's like a drum roll, right? We're getting ready for it here. Good, good stuff. Okay, so metta being loving kindness, loving kindness. It's interesting that the root of the word metta is friendliness or friendship. So we're, there's a friendly, I like it, it's Reader's Digest, it's, you know, it's homespun. It's like, okay, being friendly. All right, here we go. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And you're listening for the word or phrase or, or plural that really touch you. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Omitting none, whether they are weak or strong, the greater the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. So you might reflect on what were the words or phrases that really touched you. A friend of mine mentioned that for him, the phrase that just popped out was the two words, omitting none. It really touched my heart as well when he said it. And I'm not saying there's, that's the right answer because there is no the right answer about which word or phrase could really touch you. But just exploring omitting none because that really is the inclusion of everyone as us. You can see the intention there. So to begin with, with regard to how to see others as us, it starts with the intention, because that's what the Metta Sutta is about, is establishing intention. One should sustain this recollection. That's the establishing of the intention, really, to be aware of this way of seeing others as us, rather than them, omitting none. So what's the intention? obviously, when we engage others in very down-to-earth ways. Not so much necessarily when we think about others in politics and across the world or red state, blue state, and all the rest of that, but the other who is sitting across the dinner table or across the pillow in the same bed we share, right? or the other that we grew up with, or the other that we work with. What's our intention toward that other? So on, on that basis, I then want to mention um, three things um, in particular, two of which have studies behind them. The first is to see the suffering in others. That's the practice, of course, of compassion, how we recognize suffering. Compassion presupposes suffering. Kindness does not require as a prerequisite suffering. So we see the suffering in other people. We see the strain in their face, the the tension, the weariness, the worry, including the, weir- the worry for others, the caring for others, and, and the concern about others. Um, you know, one thing I learned as a speaker 
that has helped me stay relaxed um, most of the time around giving talks uh, is just before I start or sometimes in the very beginning to look at others and to just see the way that they're suffering, they're tired, they're stressed. Or, you know, you can see it in everyone's face, see it in my face. You know, the Nixon bruises, the Nixon cuts of a, of a life that's lived, let alone extremes of suffering. And as soon as we start seeing the suffering of other people, most of us start experiencing an us. And it gets harder and harder to dehumanize them if we actually empathize with their suffering. You know, compassion without empathy is cheap. Kindness without empathy is fairly cheap. If we can't be bothered to feel with and resonate with and empathize with other people, how fundamental really is our own compassion or kindness? Probably um, a lot of us have been on the receiving end of kind of generic compassion or generic kindness, you know, uh, with people who really couldn't be bothered to take the extra five seconds to empathize. And uh, it, when we actually feel and recognize the suffering in others, you know, then we naturally include them in our hearts. That's the first one. The second one, has a lot of research behind it, is seeing the child in other people or seeing children all together. There's something profoundly powerful in human beings to take care of children, even the children that belong to a different tribe. Yes, people can override that. Yes, they can do that, sometimes in horrific ways. But on the whole, we're very moved by the suffering of children. Right? One reason why so many of these um, very wonderful charities on NGOs of different kind that do relief work around the world, they'll show a picture of a child. You know, that's because that really, really touches us. So people that have aggravated me or are aggravating me, I'll sometimes um, just try to see the child inside them. Now, sometimes I have to go way back, you know, (laughs) preschooler, toddler, infant, you know. Okay, but I can find it. Newborn, you know. There was some moment where there was really an innocent, vulnerable, precious (laughs) being there before it was corrupted entirely. But anyway, I'm just joking. So, but seeing others as the child. So think about the next time, hypothetically, uh, or even right now, if you're engaged uh, in some kind of hassle or conflict or difficulty with someone, you know, um, A, can you see their suffering? Actually, A, what's your intention? Is it to omit none? Is, Is it to truly radiate loving kindness in all directions? Second, can you see their suffering? Can you tune into it? Doesn't mean you, um, approve of them or like them or agree with them, etc., etc., but can you see their suffering? Uh, it's actually good sometimes to work, on, work with people who are the difficult person, you know, in the loving-kindness practice, sometimes even politically. I won't name any names here, but you can imagine some names I could name that in fairly liberal Marin County could be a challenge for many people um, to see the suffering of and then, you know, locate some empathy for uh, but that's a good practice. It's kind of like a love push-up. All right. And then third, seeing the child. Seeing the child in the other person way back behind the eyes, the being way back behind the eyes, uh, way back in there, that too can naturally help us extend that circle of us. And then um, next to last is uh, really taking care of our own needs. This goes to the consideration I'm going into momentarily about fear, but paradoxically, Fences make for good neighbors. In other words, when we feel deeply rooted here, grounded in our own being, centered in our own practice, able to sustain spacious awareness, 
no matter what comes through it, um, being perfectly prepared to speak truth to power as we need to, to be assertive while simultaneously being compassionate. If we're capable of doing that over here, it's a lot easier to open to the suffering over there um, and see the common ground between us and the difficult people in our lives. And then last, of course, in terms of the, um, seeing others as us, there are the, uh, there's the awareness of interdependence. You know, obviously, in uh, a way that the Buddha was, in, was profoundly articulate about, um, everything is connected to everything else, right? We really are all intertwining, and that's especially clear when seven billion of us are stuck together in one little lifeboat. It's like the life of Pi, right? Except there's seven billion of us on that little boat caught in those storms, trying to you know, figure out what to do with each other. So just simply, if, if emptiness in the broad technical sense that everything's connected to everything else, that's an important consideration. Uh, if there's a, an awareness of interdependence and dependent arising, well, obviously, if uh, we treat them badly, it's going to come back to us, right? Uh, whether them is at the level of across the bed, you know, or across an ocean. Uh, someone wants to find karma as hitting golf balls in the shower, right? That's interdependence right there in a nutshell. Okay. So those are some reflections on seeing others as us. And uh, now I'll speak kind of briefly and then we'll open it up for discussion about living with a mind that's unclouded by unnecessary fear. There's a place for rational fear, right? Whether it's, you know, there's an alarming, like I had a shoulder injury recently and, you know, I had to take care of it. It wasn't going away. Uh, uh, if we don't take care of retirement, there might be consequences, you know. If I don't get to work on time, there, you know, there could be consequences for that. Okay. But because of the brain's negativity bias and a lot of other reasons, we're incredibly vulnerable to fear. Most of the time, we're needlessly afraid. So I'm going to offer a few practices that I do, personally, that I've found to be quite powerful, that are informed by in a sense, by some understanding of neuropsychology. The first, you can do it right now, is to notice that you're actually all right in this moment. In other words, to feel all right right now. Most of the information flowing into the brain originates inside the body. Because first and foremost, our animal ancestors needed to tune into their bodies to know what was going on in there. Externally directed senses, like particularly hearing and seeing, came quite late in evolution. Right? Now, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the signals coming up into your brain from within your body are like the calls of a night watchman saying again and again and again, all is well. All is well. The heart is beating. There's enough air to breathe. You're not in the moment of dying. You're not in agonizing pain. You're basically all right right now. And... The recognition of that is a very powerful way to cut through the delusion of threat. We are deluded about threat most of the time. Mother Nature, in a very well-intended way, is continually whispering in our ear, like Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings, whispering in our ear, be afraid, be just a little afraid, or even more than a little afraid. Because ancestors that were not afraid they were all chill, going zen, looking at the light on the water. <laughs> they got eaten. The ones that survived and passed on their genes were nervous and anxious all the time. Right? 
It's a well-intended lie. But if the root of suffering deeply is ignorance, delusion, in the Buddhist frame, um, one of the fundamental delusions we're living with all day long is um, irrational fear, unnecessary sense of threat. And one way to cut through that is to observe again and again and again, 10,000 times, five, 10 seconds at a time, that you're actually all right right now. You may not be all right in the future, you may not have been all right in the past, but in this moment, you're actually all right right now. That's a fantastic opportunity, right in front of our nose, all day long. Second, a sense of internalizing allies. In other words, the internalization of feeling cared about. Feeling loved is extremely effective in terms of helping us feel safe because in the Serengeti, as our ancestors evolved, exile was a death sentence. Feeling part of the band, part of the group, feeling cared about, having an internalized felt sense of being cared about, being included, being liked, appreciated, respected, even cherished and loved, is enormously calming in terms of fear. As they say in Alcoholics Anonymous, the mind is a, terror, is a dangerous neighborhood, never going alone. All right? So that internalized sense again and again and again, the cultivation, the growing of the flowers in the garden of the mind in wholesome ways of feeling liked, feeling seen, feeling cared about again and again and again is a way to build up a resource so that we feel less and less deluded by irrational fear. Then, um, the, another thing we can do is really challenging our assumptions about threat. You know, when uh, you would walk through an airport routinely and every 90 seconds or so there would be an announcement, threat level orange. You would see the signs, threat level orange, right? Well, I have a background in risk analysis before I became a psychologist and the odds of a bad event on my airplane on that day was threat level chartreuse. A swimming pool of green paint with one drop of yellow. All right? That's the actual odds. And again and again and again, I would watch my body tense up when that signal would come through and I would calm it back down again. Bringing it down to a more homespun level, think of the ways we feel needlessly threatened with other people. You know, Maybe they're talking fast. Maybe they've got some attitude. They're copping a tone with us. They're coming at us. But really, are they that much of a threat? Maybe on the zero to 10 threat scale, they're a one or a two but our body is going ring, 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 out like they're a seven or an eight, you know? That's delusion. Think about it. That's very down-to-earth delusion. That's what I call paper tiger paranoia because uh, they're just a paper tiger, but we're kind of activated around it. So one thing I've done personally is try to help myself again and again realize I'm not necessarily threatened by this person. I can slow it down. I'm not necessarily implicated in their mind stream. Fences make for good neighbors. I don't necessarily have to agree. I can buy myself time. Doing those things over here help me realize that objectively, I'm not as threatened as reflexively my you know, monkey, rat, and lizard brain want to think I am. Right. And then last, uh, giving others no cause to fear you. And that's the Buddha's admonition. Give no one cause to fear you. Give them cause to expect no dessert if they don't do their homework or eat their broccoli or do their dishes, whatever. You know, there's a place for expectations, notifications, expectations, consequences. It's, we're, we are their karma, as it were. We are the golf ball coming back to them in some lawful way. Okay, when that's true. But otherwise, uh, why give others cause to fear us needlessly? That makes them suffer because anxiety feels bad. 
Also, it prompts them often to act in ways that then create problems for us, right? Um, you know, kind of out of appreciating how much, as I said, that little lizard, that little mouse, and that little monkey inside us are very prone to fear, really helps us appreciate and be sensitive to and caring about how prone others are to fear as well. And then we realize there are a lot of things we could do without walking on eggshells, without pulling our punches, without you know, giving up our own rights. There are a lot of things we can do to not constitute a perceived threat for them. A little more skillfulness, slowing it down a bit, choosing our words a little more carefully, laying a bit of a foundation before we get into it, watching our tone. Tone is incredibly important. Think of one of the um, elements of right speech, not harsh tone. You, know? you can say a lot without moving into harsh tone. We're very reactive to tone. So being a lot more thoughtful about that, out of benevolence, but also because if we don't give others cause to fear us needlessly, right, then they're less inclined to become a threat to us. And that's a very powerful way to be less threatened ourselves. So, to sum up, you know, um, if you think about it, in evolutionary time until very recently, right now, just for fun, I'm, I'm reading uh, Bleak House by Dickens, and two things strike me, but three things. One, he's an amazing writer. Two, his novels are so long by modern standards. <laughs> oh my God. And how terrible the lives of so many people were. You know, and you could make a case, I think, truly, that the objective conditions were not actually physically present throughout all the time our species have been on this planet to truly meet the safety needs and the fulfillment satisfaction needs and the connection um, love needs and, and also not being aggressed upon by other needs of, of people. Except in the last generation or two, absolutely for the first time in human history, the objective causes and conditions are available. The resources and the technological know-how are actually present for the first time in our history in which truly the deep core needs of every single human being on the planet could be met. We don't have a brain that's used to this, except this is the real opportunity today. And how the human species manages this opportunity uh, will, I think, be the fundamental storyline, really, of the 21st century. So in that context, the more brains we can get to blink green, 10 million, 100 million, a billion brains on green, I think that's probably the realistic tipping point. But that's only a seventh of the world's population. We get you know, some critical mass, some tipping point level of human brains that are mostly in the responsive mode, most minutes of most days, in which the wolf of love is mostly, if not always, the love that's really operating and functioning in our relationships. This planet will shift in an historically unprecedented way to a very different place and hopefully could have a softer landing. And I think it takes a lot of courage in the face of the messages that play on our fears, uh, that are very skillful at getting that wolf of hate up and going. It takes a lot of courage to stand up for the positive possible. Right? It takes a lot of heart and a lot of strength and a lot of mindfulness and a lot of will. And uh, if there's you know, among multiple things we memorialize today, I hope we can remember this possibility. So, thanks for your attention and consideration. Any comments or questions for a few minutes? And I'll stick around a bit afterward as well. Right there. Um, 
Yeah, you spoke uh, of of the suffering of the us-them dichotomy. Yeah. But Do you want to talk into the mic like okay, ice cream Okay, yes, cone? you Thanks. spoke about the, the suffering of the us-them um, dichotomy. Um, but there's another side of the suffering, I think, that's also the, that's, that's related to the us-us dichotomy, hmm. um, if you can call it that. That the, the suffering of, of, of too much empathy, you might call it, or, uh -huh. or, or that because you know your own, suffer, your own suffering, mm -hmm. you're acutely aware of all the suffering yeah. and how that's, um, um, yeah. how, how that you know, unfolds amongst millions and millions yeah. of beings. So, what to do it, about that? So what yeah. to do about that is yeah. the only way then to create another dichotomy, which is, which is then reinforcing the us-them dichotomy by saying, by creating fences. Yeah. Um, very important question. And there are extremes of it. Actually, there's a term for it now. There's a term for most things in psychology. Pathological altruism. In other words, people who are just, they just, they go way, way, way too far, you know. So I think there are the, the Buddha really talked about equanimity. You know, it's the equanimity that can really hold uh, joy without losing your balance and can hold suffering and the suffering of others also without losing your balance. And I think for a lot of us, the truth is that, you know, we're kind of playing with the balance of equanimity and, you know, loving, compassion, loving kindness. And for some people, it's really true for me, uh, what I needed to do was to work on building up, opening my heart. You know, and then you get to a point where you've kind of gone a long way down that road and you need to work now more on the equanimity side of things. And then maybe you swing back the other way. Uh, a lot of research shows that it's hard to sustain as you, as you got, at, got at it. It's hard to sustain empathy for others if we're just too flooded. So I think, therefore, paradoxically, you know, we're living uh, in a situation in which you need to differentiate before you integrate. And in other words, it's by establishing a sense of body, being, all rightness, ongoingness here as part of the whole web, but with a certain stability and okayness here, then we can really receive them over there. You know? And it's obviously an ongoing art. Maybe another person, a comment or a question right there? Hello? <laughs> I think if people uh, um, stop, I was at a, I was at the, uh, not Whole Foods, the Good Earth the other day, and um, just sitting there at the table, communal table, and uh, all of a sudden there was a conflict at the other end of the table, and it had to do with the outlet, or I don't know what it was, and there was a man sitting here who really had nothing to do with it. But the lady, there was the two women started to kind of yell. And then the man jumped in to protect the woman. And it was just out of control in an instant, just instant, yeah. just so fast. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I'm sitting in Fairfax, California with people who are, oh, it was about a chair. <laughs> and I thought, wow, they are ready to. I don't know what they would do. You know, they were fighting. There was volatile. It happened instantaneously. And so I just sat there and I said, well, you know, uh, so I talked to them and I said, you know, you're fighting over a chair. 
And I said, this is how it starts. Because no one is stopping to calm down and look at each other and realize that it's just a chair. So we, so we talked about it for a few minutes, and the one, there was one woman who just resisted and didn't want to talk about it and kept being angry and just... And I don't know what, why she was angry. It's kind of what you were saying about understanding someone else's suffering. She couldn't seem to let go. She kept wanting to... So anyway, but after a few minutes, they all sort of sat there, and they kind of... And they said, wow, how did you, where did you come up with all that? And I said, well, I just real I realized that unless I am peaceful, no one is going to be peaceful in this on this planet. So then the lady was then the other two left, and the lady was sitting at the other end, and she she kind of huffed off. And uh, and, then, and but about ten minutes later, she came back. I've never had that experience before. She came back. She said, you know, I thank you. I appreciate what you said. And I was like, wow, is, it, is this because I'm in Fairfax, California? <laughs> but I realized that I was thinking that if we knew the ramifications of our own behavior, how powerful it is to other people, we would really think about what we're saying and what we're emanating because it perpetuates it. Anyway. Wow, thank you for the Dharma talk. You're welcome. <laughs> really? Yeah, right thank here you. in Fairfax, California. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh, I think that's very, really true. Yeah. You know, it's easy with this material to, um, and appropriate, I think, to take it at the level of international affairs, polit domestic politics, et cetera, public policy, what have you. Um, but where it gets really intimate is ex is at Whole Foods or whatever it was. Good Earth, yeah, in Fairfax. Um, an organic food store, you know. That's where it gets really intimate. It gets really intimate, um, you know, married uh, to young adult kids. Uh, it gets really intimate on what you do when snarky tone comes at you, right? Or they kind of interrupt you, or there's a pushiness. You're, you're, tr you're interacting with others. You have an issue with a neighbor. You know That really is where it gets very, very real. And um, maybe I'll just kind of end on this little comment here, which is that if you think about Buddhist practice, partly because it came to the West wrapped with so much metaphysical, obscure language, it kind of has that quality to it. But in emerging scholarship of really, really plausible best guesses of what the Buddha actually said early on in his teaching career especially, um, is that it gets really down to earth and it's very simple in a sense. And the intimacy of it basically has to do with freedom. Being freed of this ancient reactive machinery that Mother Nature for well-intended reasons has endowed us with, and freed uh, in how we interact with others so we're not so compelled by what happens to us. We're not so tightly <coughs> coupled to other people as if with a metal bar. We're more flexible. It's more of a bungee cord, you know. Um, and so then the question becomes, how do we live with a kind of freedom with others who are angry? Um, how do we not be cowed, which is not freedom? And also, how do we not go to war? which is a different kind of unfreedom. 
How do we find the courage and the freedom in the middle? I think of your courage to speak up there, you know, the courage it takes to be fully feeling the pain of others, and yet the strength it also takes to continue to reestablish our own sense of beingness here, you know, it kind of boils down to a certain freedom and a freedom of non-reactivity. So I think, therefore, to kind of sum up, what are the fires we're always fueling? We're always fueling some fires, and the brain is continually changing its structure one way or another. You know, which wolf will we feed when we go home tonight? Which wolf will we feed in how we talk to ourselves? Because the wolf of hate is chewing on our own head half the time, isn't it? Self-criticism, self-blaming, self-shaming. You're not good enough. You're not thin enough. You're not rich enough. You're not successful enough. You're not awake enough. You know, what are we going to do with that wolf? So to wrap up here, you know, which wolf will we feed? So how about we just sit for a minute and then we'll wrap up. Thanks for your practice. And this talk will be posted on Dharma Seed if you have any interest in it. So take your care. Be well. Good night.